I've had a passage of Scripture on my mind for a good number of years. It's a passage that has come up occasionally over the past several years as we've come together. It's the simple passage of Proverbs chapter 19, verse 22. What is desired in a man is steadfast love. That's the first part. And a poor man is better than a liar. In the Proverbs, of course, sometimes it seems that the passages don't necessarily connect so well, but this is a singular verse. Again, the verse, Proverbs 19.22, What is desired in a man is steadfast love or kindness, and a poor man is better than a liar. It is a great good in man, the sense of this verse is that it's a great good in man that he desires to be kind, though he cannot give because he is poor. He is better than a rich man who says he cannot give and doesn't, but lies in saying that he cannot give. Now, uh, this strays a bit from the real subject matter of the sermon today in Ephesians chapter 4. Primarily, our text will be beginning in verse 29 till the end of the chapter. But the very point is this. In Proverbs 19, verse 22, the Lord is very clear in that which is a singular priority in individuals. And I'm not standing before you today because I'm a subject matter expert on this singular priority that God has given to individuals in their character. But nonetheless, it is nothing less than what is stated here in Proverbs 19, 22. What is desired most... In a man is kindness. I'm going to let that sink in for a minute. What is desired most in an individual is kindness. And it is my express desire to, by the grace of God, present to us as a, a family in Christ a number of resolutions for this new year. And it seemed fitting that we would prioritize that which the Lord certainly has prioritized, and that is this matter of kindness. So this is New Year's resolution number one. That we, in accordance with Ephesians chapter 4, are involving ourselves not in being kind, recognizing that it's in becoming kind, right? There's a slight distinction there. Yes, we we want to be in the static state, if you will, of kindness. We are kind. That's what we want to be declared of us. But we all recognize that that actually what has been declared here in Ephesians chapter 4 is this, this process that we want to continue and urgently be in, and that is becoming kind. At the end of George Whitfield's life, he became a bit more solitary than he had been before that point. And at least on one occasion when someone was able to kind of break through into his study, they would ask him how he was and he would say, I'm becoming or I'm, I'm beginning to become to be a Christian. That's what Whitsfield said. And of course you see the distinct humility in Whitfield as he would say that. George Whitfield was one who was 
amazingly used of God in the miraculous work of the First Great Awakening in our nation as well as in Europe. But we see that Whitfield again, placed himself in this category of one of a pilgrim. Uh, and that's what we see here in this passage of Scripture. I would like at the outset of this to say that I have been uh, appreciative of Martin Lloyd-Jones, of A.T. Robertson, as well as Matthew Henry as I've studied this passage. And before we get into the real text here of Ephesians 4, 29-32, I'd like to draw your attention to the very first verse of the passage here, and that is the Apostle Paul writing, I therefore... A prisoner of the Lord, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, some of you that have been listening to preaching for some time uh, would notice the first word in this verse, therefore, and you perhaps have echoing in your mind, what is the therefore, therefore? And, and that's a very good question for you to ask. And I would like to draw your attention to an important aspect of this passage. First of which is this is in chapter 4 of Ephesians. And if you, were, uh, if you would recall, as you would read through Ephesians, you would recognize that Ephesians, as do the other epistles that the Apostle Paul has written, uh, they are in many ways, tidily broken up into doctrine and then duty, into the principles of God's Word and then its application. And the Apostle Paul is doing no less than that in this word, therefore. The point is, this is, this is a very significant uh, situation in this letter that, of course, wasn't written in six chapters. It was written as a single letter designed to be read at a single time. But we see here that the Apostle Paul is coming to this idea of therefore. It's because perhaps some of us should admit as people who uh, appreciate and embrace faithful Orthodox theology, many of us really love the the summit, the pinnacle of the mountain, as it were, of theology. We want to stay there. Talk about the sweetness of faithful theology, of doctrine. Paul is telling us right here in the letter with this word, therefore, that we're not staying here. (laughs) We are, in a sense, moving off the mountain, as it were. We are pilgrims, and we're walking beyond merely faithful doctrine. We're not leaving it, but we're applying it. And it's important that we would embrace this idea. It seems, again, that those who embrace the rich refinement and historical orthodoxy of the Reformation are only too happy to remain right there. In the doctrine, not yet breaking through to the life application. Always in the theoretical, never in the practical. Forever in the laboratory, never in the field. Always speaking loftily, fervently of the rich theology. Never to put on the clothes of the day laborer to put the doctrines to work. And who doesn't prefer the tidiness of an ivory tower? Who doesn't prefer the respectability of a white lab coat and a title or the pristine conditions as one silently reads faithful theology? But don't get the wrong impression. 
the tent maker, the apostle Paul, would say to all of the hard-working men and women, boys and girls, that you cannot bypass the depths of biblical orthodoxy in your daily life. The tent maker, Apostle Paul, is not authorizing you to prioritize the dirt under your fingernails and giving you permission to look down upon the lofty truths of Scripture as so much stuff that you don't have time for because you're busy making your world go round. There must be both. We embrace the faithful doctrines of the faith. But we, we're a people who have been regenerated and called by the Lord and given life in Christ that we apply these and we're moving, 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 going. He has placed us each individually and together in our own spheres and places wherewith we are to bring this faithfulness and apply to it in the messiness and the challenge and the difficulty of everyday life in our work and way, in our families, in our neighborhoods, and so forth and so on. The Apostle Paul is saying no less than that here. The distinction of the regenerate is clear and it's drastic. Your daily work won't be faithful without the application of God's truths. The unregenerate work is hard as the redeemed do. but they set their ladder against the wrong house. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's he's not saying that God's people alone have ownership of those who are working and in many ways doing good. But the regenerate are different. The Apostle's writing here is that even the redeemed can act like the unredeemed, and in fact they will until they insist on changing. And so the urgent exhortation. They must no longer live that way. In verse 17, the Apostle Paul is saying, follow me with a therefore as we apply the doctrine to all of life. He's saying, get get on the horse. Let's go. We're going. Here we are. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying at the beginning of this letter. Touching briefly on the few verses that are ahead of our passage here, beginning in 29, I draw your attention again to 17. He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He doesn't say, it would be good if you didn't. He doesn't say, if it's convenient for you. He doesn't say, when you have time. He doesn't say, when you get around to it. He doesn't say, when you get beyond this certain situation. He doesn't say, when everything seems to be in order, then get to this He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And every 
every sinner redeemed by grace, is sitting in a body that is absolutely inclined to act as the Gentiles do. It's what's natural. You do what's natural. You act in a natural way. You raise your families in a natural way. You interact with other people in a natural way. But we are no longer natural people. We've been given a new heart in Christ. We're supernatural. We're not like that. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. In the futility of their minds, this idea of futility here in verse 17 has to do with emptiness. And again, what he's saying is it's irrational. It doesn't come from that which you have been given. This is not the way to go. It will not end well. It is not a reflection of our Heavenly Father. Verse 18, They are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God. Why is that? Well, he answers his own question due to the hardness of their heart. As those who have been regenerated in Christ, again, as we take in the Word of God, as we hear His Word proclaimed, as we have around us brothers and sisters in Christ that would encourage us and exhort us to faithfulness, how do we receive that? Well, the Gentiles, how do they receive it? Those who, are, those who are, again, stuck in their own sinful habits, they are hard-hearted. The reflection of the unredeemed is that they will not go to the wise, as the proverb says. They will not listen to the Word of God. Their hearts are hardened, and some would actually commend that. Whereas we see that God, as He works in us, removes this callous nature. The next verse here, they become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. The idea in sensuality, again, is this idea that I live by my own senses. But we're a spiritual people. We're not primarily a people of seeing and touching and tasting. We're primarily a people of the Spirit. We, we looked last week at walking in the Spirit. What does it mean to be in the Spirit? It doesn't mean that we reject or no longer enjoy the things that God has freely given us to delight ourselves in, the things we see and feel and taste and touch. But we don't live by that. Callous. Let us not be a people who are calloused. Now, the passage at hand in verse 29, I'd like to begin reading. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Please repeat after me, kindness, 
Thank you. We're heading to kindness. I just want to make sure if anyone loses sight of that, this passage of Scripture, 29 through the end of the verse here, through the end of the chapter, we're headed to kind. Paul doesn't want to linger in anger and clamor. But he's got to go there to get to kindness. He's got to, he's got to get to this place. You see, we, we're going to have to deal with the anger, with the clamor, with the wrath, with the sensuality, with the walking as the Gentiles do, the unredeemed, for us to finally get to this place of kindness. And what he is really drawing us into, this idea here, and you will see that if you want to see the process of characterological change in the lives of the redeemed, the primary text for that is right here in Ephesians chapter 4. If you want to understand how God works in the life of one to whom He has given new life, you cannot look away from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning right here in verse 17. And so we see we're given, we're given a window in. The curtains are drawn back, if you will, as the Apostle Paul not only has introduced us to this fact that doctrine and duty are absolutely linked together. We cannot unhitch them. But also the nature of the change in the lives of the redeemed. The displacing power of biblical virtue. The displacing power of biblical virtue. Now I want, if you will, I want, if you will, children, to think about a tank of water. Are you with me? A tank of water. If you were to look at a tank of water at my house, I just cleaned a big 500-gallon tank of water out at my house just last week. And in that tank, it was sitting under a tree, was all kinds of grass and dirt and stuff like that. I had to move that tank. But if you can imagine a tank of water that's full, 500 gallons of water, what does it weigh? If you were to say about 4,000 pounds, you'd be pretty close to the truth. I can't move a 4,000 gallon tank of water. So if I want to clean that tank, how am I going to do it? Well, I can do a couple of things. I can empty it with a bucket. Or I can provide an illustration for us in the way that God works in our lives, and that is to keep the tank full, but to continue to put clean water in it. This is the process of change. How many of us would love to empty ourselves of anger and wrath and clamor? How many of us would like to empty ourselves of kindness? But the reality is, is our character doesn't work that way. Our souls don't work that way. In a sense, they're always full. And so the way of change is the displacement of sinful habits by adding virtue. That's the way we change. It's in the process of diluting the poison and the sin in us. We've got to add to ourselves these virtues. Does that make sense? That's the way we change. The tank, is, the tank of our spirit, our soul, if you, if you will, is always full in this sense. This is, this is the working metaphor or illustration for the way of spiritual change. The tank is always full. But virtue displaces the way of the unredeemed, the old manner of life. You say, I want to win. 
Amen. You want victory in Jesus? Amen. If you want to win, you can't merely concentrate on losing, on not losing. I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose. It, it doesn't work that way. You've got to figure out how to win. The Apostle Paul is showing us that here. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good. For building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Speech is among the greatest distinguishing features between mankind and the animals. Aside from the glories of Narnia, which are unfortunately not real, animals can't talk. We might wish that they could. There was one talking animal in the Scriptures. Speech is very unique to humans. One of the greatest gifts to mankind and perhaps also that which is most misused at the very center of our being. We see that speech is a powerful, powerful thing. As a matter of fact, I would draw your attention to this book, this letter of James here. In James chapter 3, James, none less than the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, James the Just, always, or I should say also described as James the camel knees, the one, who, the one who was always praying on his knees, James. He writes this, and he seems, he seems actually to, 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 to exaggerate when he talks about speaking. In James chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, he says, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole body as well. Look at the ships also. They are so large and are driven by strong winds. They are guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member. Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And so for the reading of the letter of James here, and you want to say to James, James, brother, did you have a bad day here or what? I mean, really? No, 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 by the power of the Holy Spirit. James is speaking truth to us. Speech. The Apostle Paul is talking about speech. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In your worst moments... When you say things you wish you hadn't said, sometimes you might be inclined to follow that up with, that wasn't me. The Lord Jesus says that that was you. That that's who you are. The Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, out of the abundance of the heart we speak. Your worst moments, 
is who you are. That's what we're working on today. Walking no longer as the Gentiles walk. In Christ, we're a new people. We have new power. And so we're working on this. Now, I'm not trying to be discouraging to you. Again, the nature of this is kindness, right? But we're looking at what's in the tank. Ugh. But it's not all dirt, right? It's not all dirt. It's getting cleaner. And the Apostle is showing us what it is. He says, again, back here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, this corrupting talk, what is it? Literally rotten, as in putrid. The truth about speech that doesn't build up. Rotten. When we speak in ways that don't encourage and build others up and are redemptive. It's rotten. Like rotten fruit. Rotten food. Rotten something. It's unfitting. It's not becoming. This idea here. Coarseness in speech abounds. It seems that most communication is heavy with unrefined words, with snarky, sharp comments designed to impress others with verbal flair or slick logic. When you're talking to other people in your freer moments, It is likely that speech is more described as Psalm 73, 9 says that their tongue parades through the earth. There's a sharpness. There's a there's this sneaky kind of logic. There's these gotcha statements. There's these things that you bring up because you are not really trying to set forward a faithful description of what is right and true. You're simply trying to win. So what characterizes the speech of the regenerate? Those with a new heart, those with a new organ of inclinations and power, under control, no longer self-centered, giving grace... Some are persuaded that their spiritual gift is to point out the negative in everything. They've honed over long periods of time the ability to scientifically determine the defect in every meal, piece of music, home decoration, furniture, placement, sermon, article of clothing, automobile choice, etc. They may even consider this a specially placed spiritual gift to the rest of society. A critical spirit is not a gift from the Lord. You've been given another gift, and that's not it. It's more a reflection of self-absorption than self-improvement. The way you make pizza dough is not the moral standard of pizza dough. Now, the Apostle isn't recommending that your speech be all about rainbows and unicorns either, but he's laying down the principle that speech is to be grace-giving. 
speech is to be grace-giving. This doesn't mean uh, that you back away from an appropriate in-love admonishments or reproof. It doesn't mean that the Proverbs are clear. The way of life is what? Rainbows and unicorns? No, it's the life of rebuke and reproof and correction. But we can go no farther than this Ephesians passage right here in verse 15, rather speaking the truth any so way you want. No, the truth in love. Timely correction and helpful admonitions can be mightily used of God to build His people up. This is very different than the perpetual degradation of everything. Always critique. Always the negative. Always this is how to be better. Perpetual sourness in speech is a mark of the unregenerate. And the Apostle is clearly saying, you must no longer walk this way. You're acting like an unbeliever. Sourness is not a spiritual gift. Nor is wrath or clamor or inappropriate anger or bitterness. The Apostle, again, is aiming for kindness here. Who wants to linger on the speech of the unredeemed? I don't. Verse 30 says, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. It's this statement alone that separates the biblical ethic from all other ethics in the world. Christianity is not the only religion that encourages a high standard of morality. There are other groups of people that would commend speaking truth, not to steal. As a matter of fact, there are other religions that would encourage kindness and so forth. But there is no other, no other way, if you will, that brings into the fore the problem, the situation of grieving the Holy Spirit. This alone differentiates the entire biblical ethic from every other system of morality. It is absolutely true that the application of the doctrines of the one true faith are eminently practical. But the pinnacle of the practicality of morality is not that you have your best life now or personally enjoy the benefits of not being a liar or a thief. The reality is you will have a better life on earth if you speak the truth. Not stealing is a great way to live. But in this case, there's something further. It has to do with God, particularly the Holy Spirit in this case. It's true, our new life brings us into a different relationship with God's law. The reality is is that you can't grieve the law. You can't grieve principles of morality. But you can grieve the Holy Spirit. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Our new life in Christ brings us into an entirely new relationship with God. The law no no longer condemns us to death. But there's something else. We've come into union with none less than the Creator of the universe, God. And he says, here's the bottom line. 
you can grieve the Holy Spirit in the way that you act. He says, no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. One of the most frustrating and grievous things we can do to another person is to act as if they aren't there. Children play games like this a lot. They pretend you're not there. It's very irritating. Would you like to pretend sometimes that the Holy Spirit isn't present? It seems certain that Paul had in his mind his previous teaching on the Holy Spirit written in the first letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 16, 19-20 regarding sinful behavior, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Those of us who are walking in Christ, those of us who have been redeemed, we're attached to the Holy Spirit. He's with us wherever we go. He's party to everything we say, all of our thoughts, every place that we are. You say, I don't like that. Well, it's not a bad thing. But He's there. And we have an opportunity before us to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, but to, again, begin to cultivate this relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. By, again, putting into the tank, if you will, the clean, watching the dirt roll over the top of that thing, enjoying water that's becoming cleaner and cleaner and cleaner, and enjoying at the same time a more deep sense of the love of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, a greater understanding of the fact that He's walking with us, that He's for us, that He cares for us, that He applies His truths to us, that He, that he wants for us to enjoy faithfulness as an adopted son or daughter in Christ. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. So here's a question for you. How attached are you to your old life? To your life without Christ? How attached are you to that life? The picture of the Israelites as they left Egypt is certainly a picture of this for us. They, the Bible says they long for the foods they ate. They long for their old life. They didn't understand the new life. They didn't understand redemption. They didn't understand what it was that God was doing in them. They didn't understand that primarily, yes, it involved a geographical change of location, but primarily the issue was one of the Spirit. Of a Spirit wrought change in them. Do you really want to retain the reputation of being sour and violent? I didn't memorize this passage of Scripture because I felt like I'd mastered it. (laughs) 
I can't forget this passage of Scripture if I tried. Because it represents that which I must work on. Is it possible that you're yet quite comfortable with speech that's nothing less than slanderous? Are you mean and hard-hearted? Our nature before Christ is that we're all bitter. Meditation is a spiritual discipline that none of us have to actually uh, try to figure out its definition because we already know what meditation is. It's just that we do it in the negative. We're bitter. Bitterness is nothing less than meditation. You roll over discussions in your mind. You, you want to tell the person that you're disgusted with this certain thing over and over and over again. You're the one that's dying inside because of it. Do away with this. Wrath is a boiling over, violent excitement. Anger is settled. But nonetheless, many, in many ways and often mostly sinful. Clamor is a kind of brawling. It includes shouting and violence. These things should never be present in the life of a Christian. Because sinful anger and angry speech are so prevalent, there are apparently some who consider them normal in a Christian home. If you're repenting with some routine over anger and wrath and bitterness, you're living as the Gentiles live. Yes, obviously the Scriptures recognize that we have these sinful occasions, but growth in grace is a purifying process. The water is getting cleaner. By grace, we can enjoy that. Let it be said of us that we're a people given and growing and becoming kind. Verse 32, Finally, we hasten on to kindness. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Truly the way to rid ourselves of the defects is to cultivate the virtues, the displacing power of virtue. I tell you, I'm not so satisfied with the apparently slow process of this purifying process of water slowly going into a tank. I, I'd really rather it be more like maybe an emergency blow situation in a submarine. Let's get rid of all the water now. It doesn't always work like that. But God has given us joy in this journey, right? We're We should be grateful for the new life that He's given us in Christ. 
We read here, be kind. Again, the imperative might be more fully explained as keep on becoming kind. Keep on becoming kind. Keep on becoming kind. You really can. You really can. You really can grow in this, uh, the truth of kindness. Certainly it's the opposite of bitterness, of anger. It's, beyond that it means being useful or being helpful to others. There's a difference also in, in kindness as a character trait and isolated acts of kindness. Some of us have a little balance in our minds. You have this... You recognize that you've been unkind, you've been sour, and then you, you, you try to balance that with hugging someone, telling them you appreciate the cookies. The Apostle Paul is not promoting that. Right? That's not this process that he's talking about here. Yes, we can appreciate uh, an urgency of faithfulness But we're thinking about how to build habits of kindness such that they bear fruit of acts of kindness. That's a difference. Tender-hearted. These same folks, before they were converted, the apostle described as past feeling. Their hearts had become hard. Our conversion will incline us to compassionate listening, to a, a recognition of our need to have our own thinking, to be adjusted of our inability to be the real judge of our own ideas aside from Scripture and those who are faithful in it. And he says, forgiving as God in Christ has forgiven you. There is, of course, this qualifier here. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. How so? As God in Christ forgave you. Some seem to be persuaded that doctrinal soundness is either number one, incompatible with, or number two, unnecessarily associated with kindness and affection. Let me try to hit that idea again. Some seem to be persuaded that orthodox doctrine is unnecessarily attached to kindness, that it doesn't matter about this. But the Apostle Paul has addressed this distinctly and without any doubt. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the first verse, he says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Make no mistake. Faithful, orthodox doctrine without love does not carry the water. It will not. It is a terrible commendation of the gospel. The apostle is telling us here, keep on becoming kind. 
keep on becoming kind. Yes, our doctrine is permanently hitched to our duty. But it must be in this context. Again, even in this very chapter of this letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. To forgive as Christ forgave. What does that cost you? Has it ever felt like to you that setting aside your pride, that forgiving others, has it ever felt like to you that every time you do that, you pull out a $100 bill? Does it seem that way? Here's another 100 God, Man, I'm deplenishing my source here. There's another 100 What have I done to you? Here's another 100 Is that the way it is? Is, is an act of kindness, is the development of a habit of kindness, is it, seemed, is it costly to you? Well, I think the answer really actually is, is probably yes. It, it does cost us something. What does it cost us? It costs us the dirt running out of the tank. It costs us the poison and the sin in our own bodies. That's the cost. Sometimes that's a high price. feels that way. You're attached to certain principles that unnecessarily are detached from love, kindness. I give each of you permission to exhort me in kindness. And as a shepherd of Christ and under shepherd, I have taken the word of my master and have already agreed to do that for you. I hope it's okay. Let's pray.